Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, welcome to the show. It's uh, Wednesday, June 24th. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it, that I started the show saying these fireworks are, you know, making me nuts. Well, everybody seems to have had the same reaction. CNN did a big story on it. The New York Times has a big story today. The Washington Post has done stories. And nobody knows exactly why um, there is such a cacophony happening um, all over uh, America. But I think we were right yesterday, mostly. It's guys. It's guys. Uh, the stories that um, I've read <laughs> um, use terms like pent up uh, after uh, months of isolation, uh, followed by weeks of uh, tense protests uh, that uh, people, I, and they keep saying people, and I'm going to say men. Um, However, uh, people in authority are concerned. Um, they are saying that these this is a dangerous phenomenon. Uh, it is uh, creating difficulties. Uh, it's mostly being seen in the Northeast and uh, the West Coast. Um, the Boston mayor has uh, said that calls to police about illegal fireworks have risen, get this, 2,300% last month. 2,300%, which I don't know what the real numbers are, but whatever. And the mayor of Boston went on to say much of what I said yesterday. He says, this is a serious issue. It's frightening some people. People are definitely losing sleep. Babies and children are being awakened. Pets are terrified. Our veterans and others with PTSD are experiencing real harm. And it is also a real fire hazard. In fact, um, there was a house that burned down in New York um, this week, I believe, um, as a result of uh, fire fireworks going on. Now, in, in New York City, fireworks are illegal, totally. You can't buy them. You can't sell them. You can't ignite them. The most you can do in New York City is what was always the case when I was growing up is a sparkler. But they're going off, I mean, huge fireworks, professional level kind of fireworks. And so the news out of New York today is that uh, the mayor there is uh, cracking down on, on it. And he says the number of calls coming in from people about it is just overwhelming the 311 system and that they're not going after the guys who are actually setting them off. They're going after the people who are selling them. Um, 
And somewhere, too, I saw a story about uh, a major fireworks purveyor. I think it's called Phantom Fireworks. And I think they're headquartered in our neighbor state of Ohio. Um, And Phantom Fireworks um, is saying that they have never, ever in their history experienced uh, sales like this, that it is the greatest uh, year for fireworks manufacturers ever. So uh, there you have it. Something is definitely going on, but I wish, I wish certain guys would um, find another way. See, this is what happens, I guess, if you take, you take guys uh, football away, you take their ability to, you know, watch the sports they want to watch away. And, and they're, they're, they're like freaking out and they have to blow things up. So there you have it. Um, so, uh, that's, that's what's going on. There are conspiracy theories about it, uh, as well. Um, but, uh, somehow in the weeks, uh, before July 4th, oh God. So we're we're hoping that uh, this dies down a little after July four, but I think what's happened is a lot of people have bought up an awful lot of them, and we're we're going to be. I guess some of you haven't been hearing this, but uh, if you, I live in the city, and uh, man, it's it's noisy here. Okay, big deal. That was just an update. Uh. Oh, here's another update from one of our listeners. I'll just share it with you. This is an update from our listener in Asia, Malaysia at the moment, Re. Um, he says, uh, things here in Malaysia are returning to sort of a level of normal. We've gone through three phases. Um He says, I would say 97% of people are wearing masks. Jeez, you imagine. And we have to use a QR scanner to go anywhere. I don't know what that is. If you go to the mall, you scan to go in, and you scan at every store. 90% of them take your temperature, then they spray your hands, and many then will give you plastic gloves. We are still not free to travel <clears throat> outbound internationally. So that's interesting. So Malaysia is keeping people there. They're not letting them go out. You think they'd be more concerned about people coming in, but maybe they aren't letting anybody in either. Um, and then this is for like, if you're an American and you're working and living as Brie has for a long, 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 long time overseas, all the paperwork you have to deal with. He said, I just finished my taxes for here. So he has finished up his paying taxes to Malaysia 
And I now have to go through the process of visa renewal as my visa will expire in early August. Oh, dear. My lease is up, too, and I will probably be looking for it. I don't know. I don't know where I'll be if I don't get my visa renewal. Jeez. Possibly Vietnam, but who knows? Jeez. Wow. Well, Bree, I don't know. I think the adjective for you is peripatetic. Is that it? Every time I have tentatively used that word, I feel like it can't be right. Peripatetic. Is that it? Something doesn't look right about that. But I, doesn't it mean like wandering? <clears throat> Not wondering, wandering, I believe. <clears throat> well, there was a primary election in some places yesterday, and a lot of results are still not known and will not be known for a long time. This is the new normal, and we were talking about this yesterday, about the impact uh, for the November election when it could well be that we will not know uh, who won um, because every state is dealing with uh, mail-in ballots and many of those states, including this one, Pennsylvania, are not exactly adept at it, having, having made it very difficult up until now to vote by mail so there's no no system in place that allows for uh, immediate uh, tallying i guess i don't know whatever i'm just beginning to think that november is going to be such a forgive the phrase shit show uh in regard to our um Oh, God, in regard to our, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm sorry. You caught me in mid-sentence staring out my window at a bird. And he took my thought. It's a beautiful day here. (laughs) And I have to remind myself not to daydream while I'm talking. Jeez. All right, some stuff. Um, I've been uh, holding this for some time, but I think I'll share it now. Uh, the um, the talk of defunding police, the talk of reforming police, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, it remains to be seen what uh, will happen. We don't have a federal police force, so even here in Allegheny County, I hazard to think of how many police forces there are with all the... I think... Is it true that Allegheny County has the most police forces of any county in the country? I think that's true. I don't think I dreamed that. I think that's true. And it's absurd. So each one is a, a entity into, uh, you know, of and into itself. That didn't sound right either. <laughs> Sorry, 
I slept last night. I hadn't slept before. I thought I was incoherent. Now I slept and I'm, I'm still incoherent. Dear God. Anyway, this is a piece that was written by a former police chief. Um, his name is uh, Scott Thompson. <clears throat> and uh, he has a lot of uh, experience with uh, defunding and reforming uh, police. He was the chief of police in Camden, New Jersey. Sometimes when people talk about reforming or abolishing the police, you hear Camden come up. The reason Camden comes up is Camden did literally abolish their police department. This guy was the police chief at the time. And he was not opposed to it. As he said in this piece he wrote, the city, Camden, needed, I mean, they were terribly violent city. It was ranked as the most dangerous city in the country. A murder rate 18 times the national average. Um, <clears throat> unbelievable gun violence, open air drug markets. Uh, it was it was hell on earth, Camden, New Jersey. And the police chief said this, and police were not always helping. The city needed guardians, but officers often saw themselves as warriors seeking to dominate through toughness. The citizens didn't trust us, and efforts to arrest our way to law and order clearly weren't working. As chief, I was handcuffed by work rules and binding arbitrator decisions that made it difficult for me to hold officers accountable for misconduct. I couldn't even reassign officers. <clears throat> so his, he, as he said, his hands were tied. So he said, we started from scratch. He fired every city police officer and created a new department. Now, I'm sure we don't know the nitty gritty of this, but they created a new department. This is in 2013. And the city, what they had, um, the county, Camden County, helped in this endeavor. So the city totally defunded its police. The chief fired all the officers. And the city paid the county. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Damn, to police the city while they were reforming. Um, 
they put out a help wanted sign and a lot of the previous officers reapplied. Some of them were hired, but not all. And any officer who wanted to be considered, including the chief, had to fill out a 50-page application, had to take psychological tests, had to pass an interview process that was specifically created from community focus groups. So it was an interview essentially created by the people who would be policed. And it was the kind of questions the people wanted these potential officers to answer. And they started hiring. And he said that we realized that we were literally not just building, rebuilding a police department. We were mo mostly creating a new culture, a new culture of what it meant to be a police officer. And the fact that he got rid of all the stuff that normally was in his way. He said, I could now accomplish in a few days operational and policy changes that would have taken forever before. Things like uh, requiring that officers de-escalate before ever using force. So that would, I, who knows, it would have taken years and we probably wouldn't have even been successful. He told all his commanders, I don't ever want to hear anybody say, but that's the way we've always done it. He said, because we are now operating under the assumption that the way we always did it was wrong. They started throwing block parties. They had ice cream trucks in the neighborhoods. Uh, the police were told, each individual officer was told that he had to knock on doors and introduce, I'm saying he, introduce himself to the residents. And the cops, they did all this. The residents slowly began trusting the police a little more. They became more willing to share information that helped in the reduction of crime. The chief made a point of enlisting former drug dealers who were out of prison to share with young people how to avoid the mistakes that they had made. Anyway, they did a lot of things differently. 
Every cop, he says, became a community officer. And it was understood that one of their biggest responsibilities was building relationships within the community. He says, an officer who spent three to four hours at headquarters processing a meaningless offense wasn't advancing public safety or public trust. But an officer who is visible and approachable, who does not engage in polarizing tactics, just alters the chemistry of the environment for the better and and creates an environment in which everyone's happier, including the police. The chief says we decided that deterring crime was more important than making arrest. And that is how we eliminated about 150 open-air drug markets. Because you know what? You can't sell drugs in the open if there's a police officer on every corner. And that's where the cops were. They were out on the street. They were learning names of the people who lived in the neighborhoods. And the people knew them. He made sure to investigate the top five ticket writing cops every month because they needed, they weren't doing the job he wanted them to do. He says handing out hefty traffic fines can be life-altering to someone who is scraping by. And it doesn't help to protect the community. And as the trust built between the police and the citizenry of Camden, the streets got safer and safer. The Murder solve rate went from, get this, before they abolished the old department and started over, they were, they were managing to solve only 16% of homicides. 16%. Once they reformed the police, that murder solve rate went to 61% in large part because the community was now siding with the police. And he took the same oath and told his officers they needed to take the oath that doctors take, the Hippocratic oath. First, do no harm. And that became the guiding principle. It worked. It worked. Okay. 
um, you know, people who just immediately say, well, you can't do that. Well, Camden did it. At the end of 2019, homicides in Camden were down 63%. This is the last year's numbers. Total crime in Camden, the lowest it has been in decades. The police and the residents are not looking at each other like the enemy. They did it. So I think that's a that's a feel good story from Camden. This is not a feel good story and I'm going to share it with you now. I'm so upset to have read this this morning. It was like one of the first things I read and I thought, "Oh, no." You know how if you've called a place home that you care about it, that it matters to you. And if that place you called home was a place you were proud of as well. And um, Wisconsin was my home. I grew up there. I was always proud of how progressive the state was. (laughs) And look what happened to it. And before I lived here, I lived in Madison the state capital. And Madison is the most liberal oasis in uh, in Wisconsin, and still is. And I was very proud to have uh, been a resident of, um, an activist in, and to start my broadcasting career in, in Madison. But something happened there last night that is really, really upsetting. One of the amazing things that has happened since so many young Americans took to the streets is that these protests have led to already change that none of us could have imagined. They have been successful because they have been incessant and they have been overwhelmingly peaceful. And there's power in that. Well, in Madison last night, they were out surrounding the Capitol building there. And the crowd started taking down statues uh, and getting really rowdy. A a state uh, representative, state senator actually, who happened to be wandering by, Um, A guy from Milwaukee, who I believe is also gay, and he's a Democrat, okay? So he's walking by, and he sees this demonstration going the wrong way. 
and he tries to talk to some of the protesters. He ends up being beaten up, punched, kicked in the head, probably has a concussion. He's tried to stumble back toward the Capitol building and he collapsed. Paramedics were called. He was, he was taken uh, away. The protesters said that he had provoked them. <laughs> Who knows? But when you start stomping and beating up on legislators who have been on your side for 36 years. What are you trying to do? And then these same idiots, and let me tell you, it's overwhelming white crowd. Okay? Overwhelmingly white crowd. Because it's Wisconsin. And it's the University of Wisconsin, which is in Madison, and it is overwhelmingly white. I know. I was there. And then these protesters who will be lumped in with everybody else now, and the, whatever video comes out of this will be said to be, yes, these protesters in the streets, and look at them. So they went after the statues. And they pulled one down. And they beheaded it. And then they dragged it down to the lake, Lake Monona, and threw it in to great cheers. I'm thinking, what statue? What statue did they pull down? I've, there's no statues of, like, Confederates. I mean, it's Madison, for God's sakes. And it turns out the statue they took down was of a guy named Hans Christian Hegg. He was a colonel fighting in the Civil War for the Union. He was a Norwegian immigrant and a fervent abolitionist. And he died fighting for the Union in the Civil War. And yes, he should have tribute. He deserved that statue. It stood for something that these protesters should have known. So they not only kicked and beat up a living legislator who was on their side, they defiled and destroyed the statue of a man who had given his life for the abolition of slavery. 
And I thought, what the hell? Now, that kind of stupidity, just wanton, ignorant violence, is what the people who want the status quo love to see. I hope they find every single one of these people and throw the book at them. And you gotta wonder, was this a legitimate, what the, who were these people? My guess is it's sort of like the same people who would have uh, set off fireworks. Well, they got pent up emotions. They see statues getting pulled down all over the country. That looks like fun, huh? You want to get rowdy. The other statue they took down was this statue. Jeez. I believe a replica of it is at the top of the... I'll have to... It's a statue of an allegorical woman called Lady Forward. Forward is the motto of the state forward is the motto of the state and it's personified by this you know woman and she was dragged down and thrown into the middle of the street what was she a racist lady forward who stood for according to what she's an allegory for progress jeez So, I am just sick. Sick. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, I, I, that's all. When I, when I, uh, I'm sick. Made me crazy. Speaking of the Civil War, um, Ken Burns, the documentarian and historian, I saw him interviewed, I guess it was on CNN last night, and wow, wow, it was like he was, I mean, on fire, he was so passionate, and as a historian, he knows history when he sees it and he knows history is being made now. And he says, we have to understand that we are right now in a time every bit as consequential a national challenge as was the Civil War. Now, this is a guy who knows the Civil War inside, upside, up. He says this right now, right now, is equivalent 
in its consequence, in its opportunity, in its challenge. He put it in the top four of such times in our history. I think he mentioned the Civil War, the Great Depression, World War II, and this, this. And he said, and I love this word and I want to remember it, we are in the midst of a historic reckoning. And that is what this is. And it's why people like those in Madison last night who don't understand it and who sully it and who crimp its progress as opposed to moving it forward, make me so angry. We are in the midst of a historic reckoning, and we must rise to the challenge. And he was asked if you, had to, if you were doing the Civil War series now, would it be different? And he said, yes, it would. It would. I'm sure it would be much more in the face of its white viewers. We've been protected for so long. And then, I, I can't believe this, but I, Ken Burns said it, and I'm going to say, I guess it's true. He said, more than a quarter of American presidents, one-fourth of all the presidents of these United States, owned other human beings. He didn't name names, but I'm sure the record, historical record, is there. More than a quarter of U.S. presidents. And since we're on 45, that means, geez, more than 11. And then there were ones who didn't own another human being, but were racists. We are in the midst of a historic reckoning. We have to stop avoiding saying the truth that our wondrous founding fathers 
In fact, the one who wrote all men are created equal, wrote it while he owned. other human beings. Oh, oh little Tony, I don't know. <sighs> Associated Press reporting breaking news, a federal appeals court. Well, this must be one of the courts they packed. A federal appeals court has ordered the dismissal of the criminal case against former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. God, all. Mighty. He pleaded guilty to perjury. Oh my God. Well, we are in an historic time, a consequential reckoning. Let me see if I can get you more on that. The D.C. Circuit Court ruled two to one to force a judge to dismiss the criminal case against Flynn. So I guess that, you know, we've been talking about all the crap we were taught. Remember being taught that no one is above the law? Remember that? This is America. No one is above the law. I guess not. Okay, well, what do you want to bet? The two that voted, the two to one, what do you want to bet? Oh, God. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll know more in a bit. Wow. Thank you for that, Tony. Damn. Sorry, it takes my breath away. Um, oh, damn. Okay. Um, uh, I've got all this stuff here and I don't. Oh, that really took my breath away. Incredible. Okay. Well, here's something else I have. I don't know if this got uh, much attention. Um, but I'm going to uh, give it some Wait, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm still trying to see if I can find anything more. No. Okay. 
I'm going to take us back to Minneapolis. Um, and when the when Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis cop that so brazenly and casually took the life of George Floyd. When he was arrested and charged with murder, that obviously then uh, he, he was taken to the jail, the Ramsey County Jail in St. Paul. And what it says is that eight officers in that jail have filed complaints with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights saying that they were not allowed to be on the same floor as this murderer. Strangely, I think all of these cops are black. Oh no, not all. Half are black, all are people of color. Okay, so eight non-white officers said that they were ordered by the superintendent of the jail, who is white, that they could not do what their normal jobs were. One of, I mean, they said that um, it became apparent almost immediately that as soon as Chauvin was brought in to the jail, that for some reason all of the non-white employees had mysteriously been sent to the third floor. They looked around at each other. Some began to cry. Others became enraged and said they were going to quit. They all got their composure and decided to do what they could do, which is sue. Only white officers, guards, were allowed around him. The superintendent, who has been temporarily removed because the sheriff is investigating these claims, said he decided, yes, to keep non-white employees away from the murderer because he believed that having people of color interact with him could have, quote, heightened ongoing trauma. What? One of the officers said in his complaint that he had seen on the jail's cameras, on the surveillance videos, a white lieutenant actually giving Chauvin her phone inside his cell, 
which is a total violation of procedure. I don't know if you knew that. I just wanted to pass that on to you. Yeah, uh, Russ writes, okay, this Flynn decision is the fruit of Mitch McConnell's dream. Yes, it is. It has to be. This is why they did it, uh, to pack the courts, the federal courts. These are not even small courts. No, these are life-tenured district, federal district courts. They have huge power. They've not only been packing them with politicized right-wing white men, but they've made a point of making sure the men were all under the age of 40 because they could then serve for decades and decades and decades. Russ says, this is why I say it's McConnell that's the bigger danger to, to democracy. Well, McConnell with Trump saw an opportunity, yeah, to do something that because of his position as majority leader in the Senate and because he had a majority, obviously, of cowards, the equivalent of Stepford wives who do what they're told, you betcha. That's about all the Senate has done for three years. They haven't done shit. They haven't done anything. They've only done this. They've, they've actually leaned on older federal judges to resign, to step down before November so they could get more seats. Dear Lord. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. Thank you for this. Um, Here is the list of presidents of the United States who owned slaves. George Washington. He owned about 317. People owned them while he was president. Thomas Jefferson, man, he had more than 600, and you betcha. He, yeah, all men are created equal. Yeah, he owned people. He raped some. He, God. James Madison owned over 100 slaves. While he was president, James Monroe owned 75 slaves while he was president. Andrew Jackson owned 200 slaves while he was president. (sighs) 
John Tyler owned 70 slaves while he was president. James K. Polk owned 25 slaves while he was president. Zachary Taylor owned 150 slaves while he was president. Andrew Johnson owned eight slaves, but by the time he became president, they had been freed because he served after Lincoln. And U.S. Grant had a slave. His wife had control of four slaves during the Civil War when he was fighting. Jeez. Um, his wife had slaves given to her. Oh, how sweet. It's a wedding present. Honey, I'm giving you four human beings to do with whatever you want. All were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. She freed them, even though the proclamation did not apply to her state of Missouri. Grant personally owned one slave, given to him by his, again, that father-in-law. Man, that's what he, uh, yeah. Let's wait, 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 wait. Given to him. He was given a slave by his father-in-law in 1857. Well, I'll give him this. Two years later, in 59, Grant Freedom. Also, Jesus Christ, William Henry Harrison inherited several slaves. He did not have them while he was president. Martin Van Buren had a slave. Oh, my God. Van Buren's father owned six slaves. The only slave Van Buren personally owned, Tom, Escaped in 1814, and he was found in Massachusetts. Van Buren tentatively agreed to sell Tom to the guy who found him, but they couldn't agree on how much, I guess, and Tom remained free Wow. Thank you for that, Bill. This relearning of American history is... uh, daunting stuff. I'm still looking if we can hear. Maybe there's a little more information here. Um, 
federal appeals court has ordered the prosecution of former Trump to be dismissed. In a surprising ruling, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals overruled District Judge Emmett Sullivan and ordered him to accept the Justice Department's motion to dismiss the criminal case. Yeah, they're just still working on it, so they haven't. That's it. Wow. Okay. Hey, and speaking of another, you know, statue and another president, um, the um, the statue of uh, Theodore Roosevelt that sits in front of I'm not sure which museum it is, Natural History Museum in New York <clears throat> is um, going to be moved, and a lot of people freaking out about that. Teddy Roosevelt. Well. Have you seen it? <laughs> Have you seen the statue? First of all, it's ludicrous. I mean, it is absurd. Teddy Roosevelt on this statue, he's on a horse. And he looks like Teddy Roosevelt on steroids. I mean, like he has been roided up he has like the like arnold schwarzenegger's uh you know 30 year old body um with teddy roosevelt's face on top of it the white man roided up and there on either side of him dwarfed and not roided at all, are two other men. They look actually normal. But they're men of color. Well below. They're sort of right at the same level as Teddy's feet. And one, of course, is black. And the other, of course, is a Native American. And there it is. It's like this triangle. Teddy up there at the top, roided up in an absurd image of American white male macho-ness. And why? Why did you need to put these two non-white men at his feet? The statue is racist. It's racist. Anyone who looks at it and can't see it's racist is nuts. Teddy's own great-great-grandson sits on the board of the museum. He said, take it down. People who think we're we're just we're like somehow not what treasuring? What do they think? We're not honoring our history by doing you're damn right. We're 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 facing our history for the first time. 
We're facing it. And we want a lot of this that is so repellent when you look with new eyes. You want it gone. And you want to know our history, our real history. If the way we're made into patriots is to be lied to, then there's a problem. I might feel patriotic about our country again if it rises to this challenge, this opportunity. I will proudly, proudly say I am American if we can rise now. I have a call. Caller, go ahead. I was calling about, I'd like to tell a little story. Two little skunks, one named in and one named out, wanted to go and play. Their parents told them they could, but an hour later, only out came back. Has an in come in? Asked Father Skunk. Out went out within, but only out came back. In, said Mother Skunk. Well, out, said Father. You better go out and find in and bring her in. So out did, and only a few minutes later, he returned with his wayward sister. Oh, good, said Mother Skunk. Pleased. How did you find her? Out smiled. In stink, he said. Wait, give me the last line again. Out what? Out smiled. In stink. That's how he found her. He, she stink. So it's our net. Na- oh, instinct. Okay, yeah. got it. Okay. Well, thank and you very like, much. Now we got two joke tellers. Thank uh, you. What I was thinking, like, it'll be our natural instinct to to overcome what, what all this is going on. And I have a dream that the slaves that rebuilt the White House will show up again. <laughs> Okay. Okay, that's all I have. Okay, thank you. And You're welcome. Yeah, so long. I hope they show up and scare the bejeebers out of the current occupant. We have another caller. Caller, go ahead, please. Howdy, Lynn. Hey. Hey, uh, you were talking about uh, the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you a little story about me and a friend of mine. We're in Richmond, Virginia. And we took one of those tour buses, you know, where you got the lady telling you about the time uh-huh. and this and that. So we get into this one section, and she's like, and this was the black section of town. They had their own blacksmith. They had their own, their own, mm-hmm. their own, their own, their own. Mm-hmm. And I turned to my friend and I said, you know, up north, we call that segregation. <laughs> These people in we're riding on the bus. They turned and they looked at me with daggers in their eyes. I didn't you know, know I was getting off of that. <clears throat> you know what, though? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, 
Think about, you're, you're right, think about, though, the Hill District here in Pittsburgh. And what a booming place that was with black-owned businesses and a whole black economy fed by, you know, black. In a, and I was having this thought in a funny way. Segregation allowed blacks to build their own businesses. And when integration happened, and I, it's, it's an odd thing. I remember a professor uh, tell, uh, of Jewish studies telling me that the worst thing that happened to the Jewish people was when the Enlightenment started opening ghetto doors and letting Jews out into the bigger world because he said what that did was take away this incredibly strong community that was built by virtue of being ghettoized and that the I, I, I'm not going to be able to argue this, and I mean, but I'm not arguing for segregation. I am saying that in some ways, when a people is ghettoized or segregated, there are these strange benefits of ownership that can happen. Uh, once the walls come down and the bigger white culture around sort of um, takes over, uh, a lot of that is lost. I mean, it's, it's a strange, it's like one of those sort of unintended consequences, like what? I remember when the professor said that, I thought, you are out of your mind. But there's some, some truth. There's some truth there. But I hear what you're saying, and I appreciate that you said it. You know, you mentioned the Hill District. The uh, black performers that performed in Pittsburgh, you know, like all of mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. after their concerts were done, they all went up to the Hill District, oh, tell to me. the bars, and, and, yeah. and they played till like the wee hours of the night. Well, that was so – I wish – I wish I could have been around when that happening place was happening, but I suppose I wouldn't have been. I don't know. Did many? I wonder if many white people went, or even if oh, they were welcome. Oh, yeah, no, a lot of white people went there. Okay. Yeah, that, that was like the happening place. Well, the larger culture, the larger society, destroyed it. Yeah, civic arena. Destroyed it in the name of progress. Yeah. That Civic Arena, that place is still vacant, isn't it? Yeah, they're trying to get it together. Yeah, all right. yeah, yeah it's been, it been is. 20 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah whatever. They're working real hard. Okay. okay, now that lady's taking my place there, Lynn. I don't know, I don't know I what that was that. about, but go go ahead. Go ahead. I, okay, she can't three, take your place. These three pregnant ladies are talking, mm -hmm. and the first one said, when I got pregnant, I was on the bottom. I'm going to have a boy. The other said, when I got pregnant, I was on top. I'm going to have a girl. And the other one started crying, and they asked her, what's the matter? I'm going to have a puppy. All right, you. You're out of here. 
Bye, Lynn. Bye. Jesus H. Okay. Um, I just want to do the, uh, this is not good. The Allegheny County Health Department. I told you, this stuff is starting to spike here. And I, I mean, I don't like it. Everybody's going out and people are getting sick. Okay, today, an increase of 45 cases. Now, I got to tell you, I think there was that many yesterday, too. We used to be in single digits, guys. An increase of 45 cases, two more hospitalizations. We have not been seeing an increase in hospitalizations. There is. And five more deaths since yesterday. Just saying. I feel like I've been screaming at you a lot. I'm going to give you guys a break tomorrow. I'm going to have a guest, and we're not going to talk about this much. <laughs> he is an author. He used to be uh, the senior copy editor for CNN's The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Uh, he was also a White House correspondent. And uh, now he he writes novels. And he has actually a series of uh, with a... Not not what's this genre? Not um, a that have to do with um, you know I forget what the genre is called. God dang it! Um, but it has to do with mysteries. But there's a specific genre, and his mysteries are um, center around uh, a journalist, a woman. Uh, named Lark Chadwick. Anyway, this latest one is called Fake. And it is, it deals with how news operates now. I'm not, you know, I want, I read the novel, I, I, I read it, the mystery, and it's a page turner, but I want to really pick his brain about news and seeing as he was right in the midst of it. Um, so uh, he will be joining me at, um, thank you, Amy, <clears throat> a mystery suspense thriller. <laughs> Is that the genre? Mystery suspense thriller. Yeah. <laughs> Called Fake. I'm not sure if it's out yet. I sometimes, you know, you get these before they're out. And um, he'll he'll be joining us, and we'll be able to, you know, sort of come at some of these heavy-duty topics from, um, from another place. Yeah, it is out. Okay. Um, so thank you all for, uh, for being there. Wow, I can't get over the Flynn thing. Okay, well, so that, that, that's that. And um, uh, join me tomorrow for a little bit of a break, at least partially. Um, I don't know that we're going to do a whole hour on this, but so it'll be interesting. I, I'm really very curious about uh, 
picking his brain about uh, CNN. I don't know how much he's willing to talk, but we'll we'll find out, okay? So my guest tomorrow, John Dedakis, author of Fake. Oh, God. Have a good one, you guys. Talk to you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.